tiered or narrow health plan networks are designed to steer patients towards a group of physicians that the insurer defines as more efficient than others. This approach appears to make common and fiscal sense, but does it work? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael Schieser. Dr. Schieser is a graduate of the University of Rochester School of Medicine and has a solo internal medicine practice in Bellevue, Washington. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. Now, Mike, what are the intended effects of measuring physician performance? Well, I think that sort of depends on who you talk to, but the insurers will claim that the intended effects are to bring about a higher level of so-called quality among the physician base that they have part of their network. I think it's really up to physicians to challenge whether or not the definition they use for quality is valid and whether or not the outcomes that they're seeking to gain by measuring quality is actually occurring. So how do you measure quality? Well, typically what's been happening up to this date is to use all the claims data that physicians send to the insurers coupled with lab claims data, coupled with pharmacy claims data, and to take that giant database and try to match it up and to decide if the diagnosis codes that the physician or physicians have been assigning to the patient match with what the insurer would otherwise consider to be appropriate for that particular diagnosis code. And kind of inherent in this, doesn't it have to be one doctor per one patient kind of setup? Well, exactly. And really the problem with attributing a physician to a patient or vice versa has been a major challenge to a lot of these plans in that they can come out with a score for a physician, but the accuracy of that score depends on how well they attributed the overall patient population to that physician and whether or not there's a level of appropriateness deeper in the data for the conclusions they made about what the physician actually did. So what happens if a patient does switch doctors? Well, the patient may get better or worse care, or really what we're looking at here is not so much better care, but adherence to recommendations by the physician. So for instance, if I tell a patient to get a hemoglobin A1C, microalbumin, and a retinal scan, and that patient doesn't do that, then under this model, the insurer can cite me as being a poor doctor, when really what they're citing is that there's an adherence problem that may exist somewhere between myself and the patient, but isn't necessarily a 100% poor reflection on the physician. Now, your question was, what if they change physicians? And a patient who might have been my patient three years ago might still be attributed to me, but maybe they're seeing an endocrinologist who has a different set of protocols than myself, and it could increase or decrease my score depending Mm. on how that all works out. So sort of you are your referral sources, huh? (laughs) Uh, Essentially. Yeah. It really begs the question when patients are switching from one doctor to another, how accurate these scores are when they're attributing it to one physician. I mean, that seems like an almost impossible setup. Well, and I'll give you an example is that I was sent a a letter by Regents Blue Shield in 2005 where they essentially awarded me $5,000 for being in the top 10th percentile of what they called quality and efficiency through the measures that we just discussed. And approximately 10 months later, 
they used the same data set and they drew a conclusion that I was in the bottom 12th percentile. And when I requested the data from them, I noticed that about 20% of the patients were not part of my practice, had never been seen in my primary care practice for any time within the last five years. They weren't even part of my database. So you went from the top to the bottom. I went from the top to the bottom. The interesting thing about that is they used the exact same data set to come to both of those disparate conclusions. And that's what really sparked my interest in this area is that a lot of physicians will assume, well, you know, the number's going to be approximately correct. You know, there's going to be, you know, maybe some ebb or flow here or there, plus or minus 10%. The insurance companies haven't really published so far that they're willing to say, you know, there's a margin of error here. Maybe some of them have. However, mine was so grossly disparate that my patients demanded of me to contact the insurance company because they were going to be forced to pay cash in order to see me, and that wasn't acceptable to them, at least within a small tiered network that they were trying to create for Boeing. And so I investigated this by asking the insurer to send me a disk of the raw data, which after much grumbling over and over for about eight weeks, I finally received the data set. And some of the errors that we've talked about were so grossly apparent that it was really surprising to me. So based on this really fallacious data set, you were excluded from the network. I was excluded from the network. The other thing about this is that many of the patients that they claimed had diabetes didn't actually have diabetes. And since the performance measures are so strongly weighted towards diabetes care, more than half the patients that they were stating in the data set had diabetes and I had failed to perform various measures actually didn't have diabetes. And so there was no degree of appropriateness for me to be ordering A1C levels or microalbumin levels in patients who were completely healthy and had never been assigned a diagnosis of diabetes. Now, Mike, what has been the position of the AMA and your state medical association on this issue? Well, I think it's important to remember that Using large databases of physician behaviors and trends is something that we can all really benefit from as far as comparing ourselves to our peers to say, gosh, you know, maybe I'm missing an important trend here. Maybe microalbumin is something that's sort of come out since I finished medical school. Maybe I ought to look into this more. Overall, when the AMA and Washington State Medical Association had learned of my story, they were very eager to essentially go to the table with the insurer, and present to them what they felt was an unfair tactic to potentially harass a group of physicians or simply a power play. That didn't go well, and eventually the uh, Washington State Medical Association, the AMA, agreed to pay for all legal expenses for myself and five other physicians who were part of the 500 physicians who were excluded. I think the, the line that they draw is if these scores are going to be made public, then the programs have to be done in a way that's accurate and fair. And there has to be a dispute resolution process in place that does not put the physician in a bad position or put the physician-patient relationship at risk. And I believe we were highly successful in putting all that into place as a result of what happened. Many of the presidential candidates are espousing this sort of quality performance review as part of their healthcare change strategy. Given your experience and what you know now about pay for performance, A, what can we do to protect ourselves? And B, is this a good idea to begin with? Personally, I think it's a very popular idea that has not proven itself. 
And like managed care was a very popular idea in the early 90s, it did provide a wave of cost savings initially that created a lot of problems down the road. I think it's a potential tool for abuse on the part of the insurers. And the legality of combining a score that uses the word quality and efficiency all in one that could be greatly weighted towards quote-unquote efficiency without really defining what quality means when in this case it's adherence. I think all these things put the physician community at great risk for losing a foothold in the whole medical industrial complex that we exist in. What can we do to protect ourselves? I think we all need to be proactive about supporting our state medical associations, county medical associations in advocating on our behalf. I think we need to learn about this issue. And I think that when we get a score in the mail, we need to scrutinize it, question it, and not necessarily accept that it is accurate, you know, even if it comes with a $5,000 check. So even if it's good, we should question it. We should question it. It's amazing to me how many physicians don't question it. You just assume that the insurance company knows best and roll with it. Well, the truth is we're all very busy and we get paid to see patients. Mm -hmm. And it makes me angry that some folks are getting paid six-figure salaries to figure out a way to judge us when we are essentially volunteering our time to defend ourselves. How much time do you think you put into defending yourself on this? You know, I would put it in this probably about 80 to 120 hours, but I'll tell you it was a labor of love. I wasn't doing it to protect my own reputation so much because it really doesn't matter to me as much as knowing that I was essentially wronged in a fairly systematic fashion and I wasn't going to put up with it. And I'll tell you, I received letters from physicians all over thanking me. In fact, one cardiologist in Oregon sent me a two-page letter complete with rants saying how happy he was and how much this is making him angry. And then and he sent a check for $100 wow. to, support, to support me. I thought that was just, it was kind of sweet. I made a copy of it. Because your story was featured in some of the AMA bulletins, correct? Yeah, AMA Voice, several sort of workforce publications that are part of human resource professionals that they read, Internal Medicine News, Washington Post, lots of media attention on this particular issue. Well, thanks for being on our show today to discuss it. You bet. Thank you so much, Leslie. We've been discussing Dr. Michael Schieser's story of the dark side of pay for performance. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.